We continue now with series two of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts, looking at the opening scene of Act Three of The Tempest. I'm Robert Louis Abrahamson, and I'm looking forward to sharing a few thoughts with you on today's scene. <laughs> when I was at school, about 13 years old, we were taught all about Shakespeare. That is, the teacher gave off the impression that we were learning all the essential truths about his plays. Actually, we learned very little, as I recall, but we did read aloud through several plays. Thirteen's an impressionable age, an excellent time to start memorizing poetry, and I still recall lots of lines from Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, and a few other plays we covered. But the other thing that has stayed with me from that class is the diagram that set out the shape of Shakespeare's plays, presented as the invariable shape of them, which is why I'm a little mocking. One cannot give out such confident analyses, especially about Shakespeare. <laughs> but perhaps at age 13 this might be the appropriate thing. Well, we were taught that Act 1 introduced the problem, Act 2 developed the problem, Act 3 was the climax that turned the problem towards a solution, Act 4 was the resolution, and Act 5 the conclusion. All very neat. Uh, I bring this up because here we are in Act 3 of The Tempest. Is it the climax of the play? Does it turn everything around? In the third scene of this act, Prospero declares that his enemies now are in my power. He has everyone where he wants them. He has achieved what he'd been working for. This might seem to be the climax. Certainly it probably would be if we were dealing with a normal revenge tragedy. But there is a much more climactic moment later on in the play, which turns everything around and, at the same time, quite, <laughs> quite upsets my teacher's confident pronouncements about Act Three's in Shakespeare's plays. Act Three in The Tempest consists of three short scenes, presenting each of the threads of the plot. First, the loving engagement between Miranda and Ferdinand, coming together against the commands of Prospero then the much more raucous and doomed plans of Stefano, Trinculo, and Caliban to overthrow Prospero, and finally the bafflement of Prospero's real enemies, the king, his brother Sebastian, and Prospero's usurping brother Antonio, who actually overthrew Prospero all those years ago. There's a kind of suspense through this act as we watch each thread develop towards an end we, we know is approaching, but we can't be sure how it will work out. And so on with the first of these scenes. We've just seen Caliban swearing his allegiance to his new master, Stefano, and leading Stefano and Trinculo on their way to discover the riches of the island. Caliban was leaping with joy at being free, as he supposed from Prospero. I'll bear him no more sticks, he cries. He's not going to fetch all that firewood anymore in the service of Prospero. And then the new scene opens with surprise, Ferdinand carrying the firewood, as though he's taken Caliban's place. He enters, carrying a log, a prop that he might just drop so he can have a little break, and while he's resting, he can deliver a soliloquy, filling us in on a few details, such as his specific instructions to remove some thousands of these logs and pile them up. 
He's been at this work for a while, long enough for Miranda, a little earlier, to have come near him and seen him at work, and to weep at the sight, as she'd wept to see the ship break up, as she thought, during the tempests at the beginning of the play. The soliloquy also gives us the first real glimpse into Ferdinand's mind, which is, as we expect, entirely coloured by his love for Miranda, a love that makes my labours pleasures. Contrast that with Caliban's response to hauling logs. All he could do was complain and curse. And as he resumes his work, Miranda enters and hurries right up to him, begging him not to work so hard. She tells him that her father is busy in his study and Ferdinand can safely take some time off. Caliban will tell Stefano in the next scene that Prospero is soon going to be asleep, dozing over his books, perhaps. But Prospero is never dozing in this play. He's constantly on the alert, and he has come on at the same time as Miranda, but has remained an unseen observer, or, or to continue our theatrical theme, he plays the audience, watching the drama of the two lovers. Or maybe he plays the drama critic, giving his judgment on what he's watching going on. And continuing the theme of hierarchy and disobedience, we note that Miranda is telling Ferdinand to disobey the orders of Prospero, a rebellion of sorts, following on the rebellion we've just seen being orchestrated by Caliban. The very fact that Miranda comes to talk with Ferdinand is an act of rebellion itself. But this is a kind of sacred rebellion, as though love is a higher authority than even a father's command. When Ferdinand asks her name, Miranda quickly tells him, and then almost as quickly, she realizes that she has just broken Prospero's hest not to give away her name. But she doesn't really seem to mind that she's disobeyed her father, nor does Prospero himself. There's a kind of struggle between the two lovers over who will serve the other. Miranda volunteers to carry the log instead of Ferdinand. Ferdinand says that the moment he saw her, his heart did fly to her service. Toting those heavy logs is his form of doing service for her. There's no hierarchy here except a kind of competition to see who can serve the other more lovingly. There's a contrast between the backstories of the two lovers. He has been a royal prince with experience of the most attractive ladies of the court, and Miranda, he says, is better than all of them. Miranda goes one better. She loves him without even having to contrast him to other men, since she has never seen any other man than her father. And they plight their troth to each other, Miranda taking the initiative and saying that she'll be his wife if he'll have her, a marriage proposal coming from the woman, not the man. They're beyond ordinary social conventions. Like Romeo and Juliet, once they have pledged their love, they have to part, but only for a short while. Unlike Romeo and Juliet, however, the barrier keeping them apart is only pretense, as we know and they don't. Then Ferdinand goes off in one direction, hauling his log, and Miranda goes off in another direction, presumably to go back home and pretend she hasn't just seen Ferdinand. This leaves Prospero on the stage, to turn to us with a short soliloquy. 
it's very touching to see him acknowledge that his joy in their falling in love cannot be as great as theirs, but nevertheless it's pretty great, the greatest thing he could hope for. And then his tone changes. He has to get back to his book to enact more magic. So, so much to do before supper time. And this brings us to the theme of time. This scene has taken place outside of time, a timeless moment where nothing matters except their love. The work of the day stops while they speak. The world beyond this moment is irrelevant. Ferdinand's high royal status does not matter. He will perform with joy the wooden slavery, a great phrase. He will perform his wooden slavery, which in the outside world he would never have allowed. She forgets her father's commands. Here in the middle of the play is a kind of idol out of time. But not entirely, since the idyllic lovers are not alone, but observed by Prospero, who sees the whole thing in the context of his evolving scheme of events. And then, in complete contrast to this delicate scene, comes the drunken comic nonsense of the inept rebels. We'll meet up again there. 